HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. Today is Tuesday, June 28th, 2016. We've got some great guests joining us tonight to discuss beer trademarks, including our friend Brendan Palferman from Syracuse. Esquire. And Jordan Greenberger. Esquire from right here in Brooklyn. I think we're going to call this show the Beer Lawyers because we're going to talk about Beer trademarks, Anne, and later Doug Reese from Burial Beer and Riser Legal will be calling in. He's got his own beer company and his own legal company, so that's going to be interesting calling, right? Yeah, it'd be interesting to watch him uh, go to trial, too. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a, a fun way to jazz up the courtroom. And Amber Sarah's in the house. All right. Hello. So, you know, our, our, our Beer Sessions Radio is brought to you by Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and lager. So, so guys, um, you know, Brandon, you've been on before, and uh, for years we've talked about, about beer trademarks, and, and you know, I know you're a, a real big, you know, beer enthusiast, a home brewer, and Jordan says he likes beer too. So um, give us a little like you know tutorial on on trademarks for beer. Like why do we need them? Why is there history of trademarks at all? And uh, you know little little overview to start the conversation. Sure, Jimmy. Thanks for having me again. Um, trademarks. Well, I, the first thing that uh, sort of needs cleaning up a little bit is that. There's more or less three different types of intellectual property, copyrights, trademarks, and patents, and they get thrown around um, you know, for, for the same things when really they're very, very different. So a trademark is something that is used to identify the source of a product. So 
a name, a logo, even a color. Um, and the history of trademarks and beer trademarks, uh, as we'll get into, uh, is, is fascinating. And in fact, the first, if you go onto the, um, uh, the UK trademark website, the first trademark ever registered, literally number 00000001, is the Bass Triangle. Um, and that's the first registered trademark in the history of the world. Um, so people have been doing this for a while. <laughs> I feel smart for knowing that. No, that's cool. That, that's <laughs> good. And for, for you, Jordan, you know, what's your backstory on, on trademarks and patents? Sure. So uh, Brendan's absolutely right. There's three types of intellectual property generally. And um, trademarks identify sources of good. I'll add, you can also trademark a sound in addition to color, um, and name and logo. So, you know, with beers, you can think of if you're in a bar, you hear the name of the brand of a beer or the brewery or the type of beer. Um, you could also see it on a case, on a shelf. You would recognize the name or the logo. Now, logos also, um, and, the, and the labeling can also have elements of copyright protection on them um, if there is unique artwork, drawings, design, which is separate, right? So that's the creative authorship of, it's a creative work of authorship, the painting, the picture. That's subject to copyright protection, but the branding, the name of the brewery, the type of beer, that's more of what we think of when we think of trademark. Yeah, so, so, for example, the sh- name of the show is Beer Sessions. That's a trademark. The content of the you show... You may have worked on that for me. Too. <laughs> the content of the show, the actual, what you're listening to right now, is copyrightable. This is a... It's a sound recording. recording. Yeah, a, a work of original authorship. Yeah. Hmm. And then what, what, what is, I say, let's say I'm a new brewery, and I know, can you, are you at liberty to say any breweries that you've worked with? Uh, yeah. I'm not sure what, and what can a lawyer say and not say, I don't know. I guess just ask until he says no. <laughs> Why not? Uh, yeah, I work with around uh, 40, 45 breweries, uh, primarily in New York, but uh, also in the Northeast. Um, I, do, I do work for Empire, uh, Ithaca, um, do some work for them. Oh, sorry. A uh, bunch of breweries in Rochester and Buffalo, Albany. I do uh, work for Rare Forum up in Troy, which is a great little brewery. Can I ask you, at what point do they contact you? I mean, does it, is it every stage from we're going to name our brewery, we're getting our logo set, or is it just like we have a new beer, we want to get a label on? Like, at what point do you do, is it all or nothing? Are you someone that you hire for every little thing, or can you just go, I have one new beer, I need a lawyer for it. Can you look it over? Uh, it's... I mean, it's best for uh, people to get their trademark attorneys involved as soon as possible Mm -hmm. and really to have multiple names in mind um, because people will fall in love with one name and then, you know, a a five-second search on the, uh, you know, government website (laughs) breaks a lot of hearts. (laughs) They don't Um, do it at all and they take it to the next level without having done that. Yeah, typically what happens is someone will call me up and say, I have either, often they've either just received a cease and desist letter or... They thought of a cool new name and they want to protect it, at which point um, typically a trademark search will be run to see if uh, you know, it's feasible to get that name and you'll think about whether the name itself is trademarkable because, as Jimmy knows, certain things can't be trademarked. Um, Can I just interject for a second on the trademark search, too? You know, Anne was saying you can Google it. You can go on the trademark office's website. Well, you can also pay services, and that's where a lot of people don't want to do is pay the money for the service, but they run these really comprehensive searches of not only national databases, international databases, they'll do just extremely comprehensive searches. And, and that's 
I would say recommended. You know, you asked Brendan, uh, when are people calling you? In my experience, whether it's trademark related or really any legal issue, it's not too late, but it's later than they should have. You know, right, right, it's right. when they're confronting an issue um, that if they would have talked to a lawyer or just thought about it or asked other people in the industry beforehand, um, how do I proceed that, you know, you, you can avoid a lot of headache and cost, you know, investing money in a brand. Uh, not only your emotional investment in the name of a brewery or a type of beer, but if you're starting to print labels, cans, marketing materials, work on your website, why go through that if only to find out in a few months that, hey, there's somebody else out there with senior rights? So you have to spend the money for a lawyer anyways. You well, you don't well do it. I, in the beginning. You can either spend a little in the beginning or a lot at the end. <laughs> right. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Can I ask you guys, okay, so you're a new brewery or a brewery in general, and you have a new idea for a beer. Can you kind of walk through the, uh, the steps and the process of, like, getting the name protected, getting the label artwork protected, getting it okayed by the... Uh, you know, by the whatever. <laughs> I'm yeah, blanking. exactly, the whatever. So. <laughs> the whatever. No, TTV. the um, Let's TTV. start with Brendan. Thank you, so TTV. I'm a, Hello. So let's say I'm, I'm a Little Jamie's Brewery. <laughs> First, is that What name, do you brew? <laughs> is, I don't know. I don't, I'm not even a brewer. He's the brewer. But Little Jamie's Brewery, is that name even trademarkable? Yes. It is. Yeah. Um, whereas if you tried to trademark uh, Carboni Brewery, you probably couldn't do that, at least not for a certain amount of time. Because you can't... Generally, you can't get a federal trademark, um, with exceptions, obviously, but on things that are geographically descriptive, so like New York City Brewing Company, things that are primarily merely a surname, so Carboni Brewing Company, um, and things that are just descriptive, so cold beer or hoppy beer or... What about, like, so Anne has kind of a nickname, Anne Likes Beer. Could it be Anne Likes Beer Brewery? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a great idea. No, well, it's, kind of, it's interesting, because there's all these exceptions, and I don't know well, if you... you could also, I mean... If there's a little Johnny's brewery out there, they might oppose any effort for you to go forward with Little Jimmy's, right? So in theory, yes, Little Jimmy's is trademark. You, you could have rights in that. But if there's somebody else in the marketplace, really trademark, especially when it comes to litigation or cease and desist letters, the question is, is there a likelihood of consumer confusion? That's the test nationwide. So once somebody establishes that they own a trademark, the next step that a court of law will look at is, is there a likelihood of consumer confusion? And throughout the country, there's different tests here in New York. It's called the Polaroid test. In the federal circuit, it's DuPont, I think. Um, and there's all these factors that they'll go through. So just because Little Jimmy's might be uh, original or you know subject to uh, stronger Even trademark protection, not, not that original. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Exactly. It's not. Um, so that would be considered as well as if there's anybody else in the marketplace that has a confusingly similar name. Is that, is that why like some companies, like like a phone company would make up a brand like Verizon, so it's like a totally made-up brand? Is that is that more trademarkable than... Right. So there's different levels on the spectrum, ranging, ranging from generic, which uh, you cannot have any trade right, trademark protection in, to arbitrary or fanciful. So arbitrary refers to marks that are used on a good. It could be beer. It could be really anything, phone, a cell phone service that um, doesn't relate in any way to the product or describe its services. Fanciful is just a made-up word, right? So Verizon, I don't know what that means. I, I would imagine that that is a made-up word meant to dis to distinguish their goods. So that is subject to the highest levels of trademark. It means trademark. expensive in Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> and on my phone bill. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, but so I figure like a show like this would really appeal. I mean, there's so many breweries opening up, a new one every hour or something insane. So I kind of feel like this is who that would reach out to, people opening new breweries, starting new companies. And if someone were to do that, what are the actual steps? Okay, first, you know, from, from beginning to end, just say, let's say you're starting a new nano brewery. Where do you begin as far as trademarking your name, website, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, when, when I get that type of call from a brewery and planning, um, the first things I recommend are, you know, do, do a, at least a quick Google search on your own and start locking down the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram um, uh, all the social media platforms. And then um, on the trademark side, you file what's called an intent to use application, um, which you can file up or, uh, up to three, uh, you know, more or less three years in advance of actually beginning selling beer. Um, so it's a, it's a way that the government allows you to lock a name down um, early in the process so you don't, because otherwise you'd have to wait till you actually had trademark use, which is beer sales, to get the application going. On that, on the intent to use application, you have to have a bona fide intent to actually use the mark. What I was just about to ask. Right. Bonafide is kind of one of these funny legal terms, but um, you really actually have to be starting the process of working on it. You can't just lock down names. What what if someone registers a website and they don't really want to use it? What if a big brewery goes ahead and starts... You know, registering all these names that they might use down the road. Because so, I've seen that happen. I, I think for websites, you're kind of opening a different can of worms, too, because there is this notion of um, cyber squatting uh, and just going out there and grabbing domain names, you know, littlejimmies.com. That's mine. Don't I do don't want to go on littlejimmies.com. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody does. Next. <laughs> but, anyway. but um it is related to trademark, so... There are ways that you can go about having the people, the WIPO, the people who really are responsible for domain names, to have somebody who is squatting on a domain name. A lot of people will just pick a domain name, sit on it, and then say, hey, I'll give it to you for $10,000, whatever. They just make up a number because they're trying to hijack the name in exchange for a number. So you can do a proceeding uh, where you do try to have the domain name transferred. In terms of trade, have have some big breweries gone ahead and registered you know certain names you know like the, the like and what is a name because it's like a, an ipa you, is not is not, that's not trademarkable but like if i make up a name like you know gigantic something mm-hmm. i mean if i go ahead and, and trademark that you know just tell me that is, is it, you have to have an intent to use right? i have so is that a but i have a, i have an example i don't i'm going to tell it this is my sure. example this is where we're at a few years ago our friends in new york barrier brewing had a, a label that came out, and this is something we can all talk about, called Ruthless Rye. And they got a letter from Sierra Nevada that said, oh, we've trademarked Ruthless. But even though they weren't using it as a rye, they had trademarked it. They, they, I don't know though. if they ever made it. They, but, yeah, it's Sierra Ruthless Rye. No, but then they were making it. But at the time when, when Barrier first came out with it about five years ago, Sierra had trademarked it but didn't have a Ruthless Rye. And I remember, if you know the case, that was very interesting. It wasn't even a case. It was, it was a friendly letter. Mm-hmm. And Barry backed off, and now they call their rye the Evil Giant IPA. I don't know if that's a point of talk, talking point. I would guess that the uh, trademark and Ruthless, if it was Ruthless Rye, disclaimed the rye part. Because rye describes a type of beer or an uh, ingredient in the beer. So the Ruthless part... You were asking before about levels of protection and Verizon being at one end and versus a generic. Ruthless, what does that have to do with beer? It's it's not a made-up word, but it, and it's, but it's not suggestive of the type of beer. So uh, it's fanciful. Somebody just assigned the name Ruthless to it. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, there are cases where there are disputes. People say, well, I make an ale and you make a lager. Well, okay. <laughs> They're yeah. beer. I mean, beer's beer. And, um, you know, I think we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, another, another question I get just along those exact lines is, oh, uh, I, I named my beer this. Somebody had a, a trademark for the brewery, but I can do it for a beer, right? Because that's a brewery and this is a beer. And the answer is no. They're they're way too close. So, for example, I couldn't go out and start, you know, Flower Power Brewing Company tomorrow because Ithaca has a registered trademark for Flower Power for beer. Then you wrote about a, a, a similar case. Was it Black Ops? Right. So um, there was a case in January of this past year where the Brooklyn Brewery here in New York brought a lawsuit in California against a small startup brewery that um, was called Black's Op Brewing. Um, or Black Ops Brewery. I, I don't recall which one. Um, but Brooklyn Brewery has a seasonal release that they've had since, I think, 2007. It's a Russian imperial stout, and it's it called... may or may not exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to the record... <laughs> according to the record, it exists, and it's on sale east of the Mississippi, and Brooklyn Brewery had intent to distribute it in California. And so this little startup brewery last year tries to get off the ground, um, they're only distributed in one county in California, three restaurants, two bottle shops. But the Brooklyn Brewery uh, went after them. And I don't say that in a negative way. I mean, they have a federally registered trademark in the name Brooklyn Black Ops. Uh, and they ended up getting an injunction. Someone's calling us right now about that. <laughs> <laughs> that beer does not exist. I tell you what, we're going to take a short break. This is a good starting point. We'll be back in a few minutes talking more about beer trademarks. Beer Lawyers on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you. In 1996, Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, it's uh, beer lawyers, beer trademarks, and uh, we're getting crazy here. We're talking about Black Ops the beer versus Black Ops the brewery. Wow, man. That's crazy, Jordan. <laughs> Just settle down, everybody. Yeah. Crazy, guys. Crazy. So, yeah, thanks. Um, so the Brooklyn Brewery ended up getting an injunction, which is, in layman's terms, a, a court order telling that this California brewer that they couldn't use the name, they couldn't use the website that they had registered, and um, ultimately, if you look at the record, about two or three, three weeks later, the case settled, which 
probably should have happened beforehand. You know, it's always unfortunate when any case goes into litigation. And I think everybody here, we were talking before the show, there's a lot of letters, friendly or not, that go around um, when these types of issues come up that hopefully you can avoid having to pay a lawyer and, and be involved in a, in a lawsuit. But um, I mentioned before that there's a test that the courts apply in determining whether or not there's a likelihood of consumer confusion. And there was one part um, – I'm geeking out right now because I have a copy of the decision. That's why you're on. Uh, but I feel so fancy. One of yeah. the elements that um, a court looks at generally is the degree of care likely to be exercised by the purchaser. So is somebody who's purchasing a $1,000 product more likely to pay attention to the source of good than a $1 product? Okay. So here, the beer, the, the Brooklyn Brewery's beer was $30 a bottle, and the California Brewers was $5 a bottle. And the court kind of said, hey, beer's beer. You buy it in a chaotic environment like a bar, or maybe you're at a, you buy beer regularly. It's not some one-off purchase. And I, and I ask you guys, you know, is that fair to the craft beer industry, to people who are really interested in microbreweries, craft breweries, you know, how much, um, how much are people paying attention? Would you know the difference between a $30 Imperial Russian Stout and a $5 ale? It's a question I would ask you, but, you know, the court did say essentially beer is beer. Well, I have to, on that note, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, obviously we are in a very beer-centric environment sure. and we work in those environments as well, but, you know, for everybody that really knows every little detail about Brooklyn Black Ops, there's someone that just kind of sees it on an, a beer writing website, or and I'm just playing devil's advocate. I have an aunt that calls me from the supermarket and goes, "Here's my choices. What should I get?" And you know, someone like her who is excited about it but doesn't really—I mean, she grabs it for fun. You know, I can completely understand how that would yeah. make a difference. I don't think you're necessarily playing the devil's advocate because it's the it's the reasonable purchaser and who is well, I mean, purchasing a beer, beer. Geek. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right, but yeah. You know, are you, is it from the standard of a beer geek or is it from the standard of your the, aunt the in a supermarket? Right. And the mass, you know, the, the majority of people who are actually buying these beers, I think. And what about for you, Brendan? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, actually, often? Yeah, I've actually tried to make that argument in uh, proceedings before the United States Patent Trademark Office, where one of my trademarks for a craft brewery was rejected based on a huge macro brewer's trademark. And I said, I, I, I don't know if the argument was. If it, you know, if it carried any weight at the USPTO or not, uh, the trademark office. But I said, yeah, like a, a craft beer consumer, like the the consumer of this microbrewery's product, is very in tune to what they're purchasing and knows that it's not a, a macro lager. Hold on one second. So I had a Hill Farm said Edward Pale Ale to start my night. It's something that's always on tap here at Roberta's in Bushwick. And uh, Jordan, what did you bring? You brought like a real sure, sour yeah. goza. I, I brought a uh, orange blossom goza from Platform Beer Company in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I had it a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting family over Father's Day and uh, watching basketball. <laughs> You're gonna I was watching basketball. <laughs> Go Cavs! Um, so the label says tart, salty, and aromatic, and I agree. Um, I think it's a great summer session ale. It's about four percent ABV, and it's delicious. So if you're in Cleveland, check one out. Can I ask you a trademark sure. question about this beer? Because it's actually something I noticed right away. I've never heard of this brewery, and I looked it up. And on the side, it says brewed and packaged by the Gypsy Brewery, Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, so it's Platform Beer Company, brewed and packaged by the Gypsy Brewery. That's a term we see all the time, and it's sort of a romanticized way of kind of, you know talking about contract brewing or however you want to put it, would they be able to trademark something like this? Because 
to the outside, you know, to maybe a court, they would say, all right, no one's used that. But it's a term we use all the time, even though no one's probably trademarked it yet. How do you how do you I, I would deal s- with something like that? If it's just a common uh, a common you like know, you mean the gypsy like a beer phrase, company. right? But just something that people all say, but it might not necessarily be something that people would put on a label. That's a good question. So I would say one thing. You know, is there any other registered gypsy beer company or gypsy brewery out there? But the second thing is, when you say the term gypsy, what do you mean? Are you describing? Contract. Well, they're going from place to place, right? So is it descriptive of the services that they're providing or the goods they're providing? Brandon, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think think if if you tried to file a trademark for Gypsy Brewer, you'd get a rejection from the trademark office saying, and even if they don't, Necessarily know what like you're, you're probably not getting a beer nerd at the office there, right? That's <laughs> but, the point. but they might they, slip they'll, they'll ask like, does is this a term of art in the industry? Does this have any a descriptive meaning? To which you'd have to say, yeah, it does. Yes, okay, that in was which the case it'd be got Hey, we've got a special call in too. Uh, Doug Reeser from uh, Burial Beer Company is also an attorney, so he's like Burial Beer, and he's attorney Reeser Legal. How are you, Doug? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Can you guys hear me? Okay, good man. I know. Did you follow what we were talking about? I did. I did. Where'd you find all these lawyers? <laughs> At the homebrew club. <laughs> oh, they're, they're knocking down our doors. They take out ads in the subways in New York City. I don't know if you knew that. Everybody sounds so smart in the room. I don't know that I'll have anything to ask. Well, did you ever register a trademark for your beers or anything? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Uh, sorry about that. Have you ever registered a trademark for any of your beers? Oh, every time. I think we have probably 60 to 70 trademarks for all of our beers at Burial Beer Company. And um, uh, it's quite the task to try to manage them all. What, what are some of the most out, out unusual or outlandish names that you guys have trademarked? Some of the ones that we have? Yeah. Um, you know, it's <laughs> as most people can attest to at this point, you know, the days of being able to acquire a single word trademark are almost over. Um, it's, uh, it's very seldom that we're able to pull a mark on a scythe or a skillet or a uh, surf wax like we used to be able to. Most of the ones we file now are uh, the Triumph of Death or the Massacre of the Innocent or the um, Ascent of the Blessed. Sounds like a Slayer song. (laughs) This actually circles back to something we were talking about, too, with the intent to use application, because you have an established brewery and you're coming out with new beers on a seasonal or whatever basis, but you can, you know, it's not just when a brewery is starting. This is also important for established breweries and established brands that are expanding their product lines, because every time you come out with a new beer, you know, you're investing time and money into that brand and what does it mean to the consumer so um, you can already have a beer that you're brewing and realize that you haven't registered the trademark uh, you don't it doesn't have to be at the earliest stages of course that would be advisable but um, existing breweries do it with new beers you're producing if you haven't registered it you can go back and do it Doug when you said managing that many you said it's tasking once you get the trademark what does the management like entail well, um, there's, uh, it's kind of a, it's really an in-depth process. And I would say, you know, basically to your last point, you know, a beer brand is conceived basically either as a really cool name or a really great formula. And it can start on either side of that and you work towards the other. 
Um, I would say that the vast majority of our marks start as a um, as a formula, and then we try to find a name. And so, your your beer protection process starts from the moment you have an idea to make a beer, and then you know from the from the once you have a formula, we have an idea of what the hell we want to do. We're on the internet, uh, running test searches through the trademark database. We are looking through Untapped, through Rate Beer, through the colas that have been approved by the federal government to ensure that there are no confusing uses out there. And it, the process is, it takes weeks sometimes. And we just put out a hoppy Kolsch a couple, maybe a month ago, that it took us two weeks to come up with a name because everything we liked was taken or was confusing or there was a wine or a whiskey or an energy drink. And it, it became such a daunting process uh, to come up with something that you end up just throwing a dart at a dartboard. You just you end up compromising and, and being you know, somewhat unhappy with the name you select um, when you start with the formula and then go look for a name. seems like the only time you're happy is when you're starting with a name and then building a formula. But the process, beyond researching, I mean, that just gets you to a name. Then you've got to file your intent to use uh, intent to use the mark. You got to plaster it out on the web. Make sure that everybody knows that it's there. We're filing for um, colas with the federal government, with the state of North Carolina, and any other states we distribute in. Um, as soon as we have a label, or as soon as we have a keg collar for the beer, and then we got to go through the USPTO process, which you know it's a uh, it's a lengthy one. You're you're trying to track your marks. You're making sure they've been published. You're um, filing your extensions when you need to if, if you're not ready to show use in the marketplace and you're filing your statements of use when you do have it. But it's a 15 to 18 month process sometimes just to get a mark registered. can take longer if you're not using the mark across, uh, across state lines. And uh, that's just to get your mark. It's a whole other story to enforce your mark because you're you're consistently, I wake up every morning and police on tap to find out if, if there's any other skillet stouts out there or skill at anything, basically, which is kind of our most prized mark. Um, and, and then I have to write the really awkward, terrible emails to the other brewers in a somewhat friendly way of telling them to change their brand. Um, Doug, sorry, what's, what's the name of your new, your new Hoppy Kolsch? Did you hear me? What did you say? What's the name of your new Hoppy Kolsch? Uh, it's called Billows, as in Smoke Billows. It was a uh, smoke close. signal from the mountaintop, the beer you drink when you when you reach the apex kind of type of thing. I like it. <laughs> let's ha- well, let's ask everybody in the room because we have a couple lawyers. So you guys, at some point, do you think that we should just stop naming our beers and just call them, <laughs> you know, like regular brewery IPA? I mean, or is no. it make it, make it more work no. for you guys? You got to do your homework. You know, you, you got to take the time. It's frustrating, I think, that... The beer names tell a story. Um, our beer names are very in-depth. Almost always they, they tell a story of either the of something from our own personal lives, from the story of burial, from the uh, something that's inspiring or amused to us, or the beer itself in the process of making it. Um, I think beer names are extra- incredibly valuable. They are. There are reasons you can sell a beer beyond how good it tastes in the package. Um, a lot of people sell beer based upon names alone. Or packaging alone, That's or the sure. uniqueness of the ingredients that are stated on the label. So, I think we, I think that it, they're there, they're there to stay, and it's really up to us as in the legal community. I think to try to carve out some uh, more narrow 
distinctions of what are per se confusing marks because um, you know the bucket is is filled with wine and liquor and spirits and uh, beer and energy drinks and soft drinks now and sometimes bar services and it's it's too much and I think that it's it's going to be up to some really really great lawyer somewhere to prove to the USPTO that. Um, you know, wine and beer can be considered different products, or spirits and beer can be considered different products, and give us the ability to acquire so many more names that are taken by all this type of label. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. That I, I have that fight with the USPTO every single, oh, not every day, but at least once a week, where a trademark for beer gets rejected based on a trademark for wine. So that's another thing that brewers have to keep in mind when they're clearing these names, is that if someone has a trademark for another alcoholic beverage, or in some cases even restaurant or bar services, uh, that can block your trademark for beer. I just want to go back to Jimmy's question that he asked about, should we even be having trademarks for things? So, you know, what Doug's talking about is how important it is for the for the brewery itself, for the brand. But the, the flip side is trademark actually protects the public, right? There's a huge public interest in enforceable trademarks because consumers, whether it's beer, whether it's medicine, whether it's food, whatever... They want to know where their stuff's coming from and know that it's consistent. You know, if you think about McDonald's, every time you go to McDonald's, you know what that cheeseburger is going to taste like. And so there is this public interest. It's not just the brewery's perspective on why trademark's important in growing the brand and the goodwill, but the consuming public has a, has a big interest in knowing the source of goods. That's great, man. Great summing up. Uh, Doug, stay on the line with us. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, we're talking beer trademarks, beer lawyers, and uh, we got Doug from uh, Burial down there. Hey, Doug, you still on, bro? Yep, I'm here. Okay, so um, we're going we're gonna to go. Jordan brought in an article about uh, you know 1935, like a, a beer. Publication. Yeah, I just wanted to bring this to everybody's attention. So there's this publication that started shortly before prohibition. I'm sorry, before prohibition was repealed in 1933. I found it in the New York Public Library. It's called Brewers News. It was a weekly magazine, and I found an article from 1935 that's called "Trademark and Label Protection." Okay, this is 1935. So this isn't new to the industry. Uh, Brendan was saying before about the oldest trademark being the triangle. So I think it's really an educational thing. Why are there all of these people getting cease and desist letters or having issues? People don't know. It's it's not new to the industry. Just because there's growing number of craft breweries and new beers hitting the market. Well, that was true after Prohibition, too. So it's from my perspective, I think probably from Brendan's perspective, too, we talked about this. When do you call the lawyer? It doesn't have to be calling a lawyer, but just do your homework. See what else is out there and understand the rights that you have or that you might be infringing upon. So flip, flip through the article because it showed it was 1933. It said what uh, 
beverage label. Yeah, I mean, this is under old law because it's 1935, so the most recent trademark statutes from 1946 and the copyright statutes from 1976. But the concepts are the same. I highlighted something from this 1935 article that I think still applies. Uh, the law endeavors to prevent the employment of any medium by which it will be possible for another party to represent his goods as those of another. It seeks to prevent twofold wrong which comes from such sales and wrong suffered by the party whose merchandise is imitated in the sale and the wrong suffered by the customer who did not obtain the known product desired. That's what we were just yeah. talking about. The public purchasing the wrong thing. And then trading off of some another brand's goodwill and name. But in that, there's old labels that were registered, uh, like sure. Pacifico. So, tell me some of the labels that jump out. Is Carling in there? Yeah, there's Club. some really cool ones. There's Utica Club that Brendan yeah. and I were just talking about. You want to talk about that? Or? Uh, that yeah. thing is just interesting because uh, uh, Saranac FX Met Brewing up in Utica uh, just, I think, re-released Utica Club in new cans. And I think the logo is exactly the same as it is in that trademark filing from the 19... 19- Teens, whatever it was. It's- yeah, I just saw this High Life. Um, what else? So is this there? was like right after Prohibition. Everyone was, they have to re register brands. Is that what it was? Or, or register from scratch? Rheingold, sorry. Uh, uh, they may have, yeah. I think this was for 3 2 beer, which um, had become legal before other forms of alcohol. Can I ask you, too, I was like, when he mentioned about writing that awkward letter, I think there's a lot of confusion on the consumer side about these letters, and especially if you look on social media, when anyone, like, he just went over it, what, eight to ten month process it takes to get this. I think 18 months. 18 yeah. months. Oh, there you go. Even even more extensive. And someone uses it, and it's like, okay, we've gone through this work, and I feel like the consumers, especially online, just see that and go, oh, you know, the big guys are beating up on this, or not even the big guys, from one craft brewer to another. And I think it always is looked at like a really bad thing, and it causes a lot of bad press that might not be warranted. And I just like appreciate that you're talking about how much work goes into getting this and why you need to protect what you have. And am I right that if you don't protect it, you have the risk of losing it? Like if you have an image or... or Sure, it could become a generic term, or you could have abandoned the mark. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a, what's the. I think Kleenex, maybe Kleenex, is the famous example. Xerox, Band Aid, Band Aid. Right. These names were trademarked at one point, but they've become so commonly used that it's just literally a a noun now. It's what it's another word for tissue. Do you guys have any comments on? And not to get controversial in any way, but like the Sierra Nevada Lagunitas. Uh, back and forth about their IPA. And that wasn't necessarily a word or so what a, was, a beer name. It was name, the, the look of But it was the, the aesthetic, right, the block letters the and the things like that, right. So yeah. how, and there was a lot of backlash on that on both sides. Where does that come from? How is that protected? What can See, you The do? lawyers are thoughtful. They don't want to speak without thinking. <laughs> That's nice. That's a good quality. <laughs> i got to practice that. Uh, right. I mean, to me, the interesting part about that dispute is how it was quickly resolved by market influences and consumers, right? So if there's a lot of social media backlash, um, whether it's any brand, really, I actually see this in fashion a lot, too, where there's a lot of politics between the different uh, designers and stuff that, you know, if there's a way to work things out without having to go to court or be in a trademark proceeding, I, it's more cost efficient, and I think it's usually the best way. But to your question, right, the word IPA is a style of beer, but the artistic rendering of it, if you could consider it a logo in any way, so if, probably if, has if, some if level of trademark that protection. Lagunitas, the IPA, IPA, whatever that is, font. Mm-hmm. 
do you always think that that's Lagunitas? Absolutely, yeah. Sure. Well, if you see a chalkboard at a bar that just says IPA, would you think Lagunitas versus if you saw the stylized? No. Label? Right, exactly. So that's then, right there, you've just answered the question that there is some sort of brand recognition just by the stylized. Hey, let's get to, hey, Doug. Uh, come back on, bro. Yep. Hello. Okay. Are you listening? <laughs> Doug, how? Any reactions? Specific reactions you remember, or or. You know, if let's say you do a friendly letter to someone and they write back and they just don't agree, what's the next uh, step? <laughs> I have a lot of reactions to everything you're saying, and I'm biting <laughs> my lip. Um, you know, don't bite your uh, lip. The, Good. The Lagunitas dispute is probably, I think, I think the way it ended up was the best thing that probably could ever happen for craft beer, despite the fact that I don't necessarily disagree with Tony's overzealous approach to trying to protect the block letters. I don't I don't agree. I would never take the action he did. I don't blame him necessarily for doing it, and I don't think he should be vilified for it, but the fact that he listened to the court of public opinion and made the decision to back off because it was best for his brand and his consumers and to save faith for him as a person, because I'm sure that he has a lot of personal pride as well behind that, was a, was a big step, and I, I uh, applaud him for doing that. I think that we've seen a lot of other large brewery versus uh, small brewery, which is the difference here, uh, that that was large brewery versus large brewery, at least craft breweries. Um, large brewery versus small brewery, uh, court of public opinion, be very, very swift against the large brewery. It's sad because um, they're not always correct, but in many instances, um, in many instances, larger brand, uh, brand owners are going to be considered a bully regardless of their, their position and their argument, um, and that's just the case. Obviously, because the smaller breweries are willing willing to be more uh, open with it on social media and publicizing it, the larger breweries have PR personnel and um, public relations uh, marketing teams that are out of house that control the flow of information, and a lot of that stuff keeps private. But these cease and desist letters, you know, the one the one thing I tell almost every one of my clients is, you don't want me to send a C and D letter. You don't, because it'll probably end up on Beer Pulse. Right. Because it always does. And then you'll have tens of thousands of consumers that know about your brand for all the wrong reasons. So um, we, we try to be really casual about it. Um, and I, and I, I say that to, you know, everybody, both clients of mine and friends of mine in the industry, you know, be casual, reach out to the brewers first, talk about it. So, much, it, so many of these can be resolved in a day or less by just having a, a real business conversation between the business leaders. Um, you know, most business leaders in the space nowadays are educated enough to understand their rights and their, their posture. And uh, they are, are I think, in, in the best place to make the decision of what's best for their, for their business. Um, you know, obviously everybody needs to probably consult their legal team and figure out how much they can push. But I would say 90% of the disputes between my clients or my, my colleagues and other parties are resolved by the internal management team uh, over a casual conversation, and that's I think where it needs to start before the CND letters. Too many of these, too many, too many larger brewers um, use larger firms that just kind of punch right with the CND letter and ends up becoming a PR nightmare for them. And I would just, I would just recommend they kind of draw that back a little bit and take have a precursor to that to that level of effort. Do you think there's a risk of it becoming someone taking advantage, saying, we know you don't want this cease and desist letter out, so too bad? I'm going to put yeah, this out I anyway? Think, you know, As I mean, even bigger. if it's 24 hours. I mean, well, how long is a, a, you know, a wait to take to kind of 
take the time to do that. I mean, I always, it's strange, I'm a beer lawyer, I represent 100 plus breweries around the country, but I have my own lawyer who I consult with because I'll be damned if I'm going to make my own legal decisions with my own brand because I'm too passionate and think I'm too smart to be reasonable sometimes. And even with my own attorney, you know, talking with them, I, I would always consult them right away, show them the situation, talk it out, plan, come up with a plan of action, and then say, give me 24 hours to see what type of progress I can make. And uh, as long as we're protected, as long as we have everything filed and pending and we've protected our rights before we, before we speak up, because that's a common mistake, is that some people don't have their stuff filed before they speak up and then somebody beats them to it. Um, as long as I have, then I think it's the right step. And like I said, 90% of the time it's going to get it resolved. And uh, Brandon, want to answer that about filing before you speak up? That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely come across that um, a couple times where more or less you say, and in fact, uh, I can't mention who it is, but I've got that going on, littered that exact situation going on right now with, and the, the name of the brewery that's at stake. So what happens is you reach out to someone, you know, in a friendly manner to say, hey, you know, we we both got similar names, you know, one of us should probably change. <laughs> And, you know, without having a trademark or at least an application in place before doing that, and that just spurs the, the recipient of the letter to uh, file a trademark and beat you to the, beat you to the punch. Hmm. I agree 100%. I think people, you know, when they get confronted with any sort of uh, aggressive lawyerly letter can sometimes entrench in their position, and it's harder to come to a resolution uh, have, the, know, Doug, have that conversation first. D- Doug's know. on the phone, sure. and he's like, he wants to say like another hour's worth. And did you get <laughs> any uh, tweets? Any questions from uh, any beer people that they well, want what, answered? Um, I think I think we probably no. answered most of them at this point. Uh, yeah, is there any proper way if if you just have that nice conversation and you don't agree, and it's like I don't think this is similar. Well, I don't. I think you're wrong. What can the next step be aside from taking legal action? And is there one? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, the only way you can actually get someone to do something is with a lawsuit. Um, or there is, um, if there is a registered mark, I mean, there are proceedings that you can have in the trademark office, too, but it's it's a quasi-judicial proceeding. You are essentially in court. What about you, Doug? What, what about me? Um, Having a good time? <laughs> he's not drinking beers. He's got a hundred yeah. beer labels he represents. He's, he's part owner in a brewery, Asheville, North Carolina. It sounds like that's where we're all going to retire, right? I think so. What, what was I going to say, you guys? Um... Oh wait, hello. We're losing you, Doug. I think I lost him with that. <laughs> but thanks for coming on, man. Um, last one, quick wrap up. A favorite beer label that you know you, you like, just as a good example of. You know what? A, what a good brand should be, and one you hate. Either way, pick, pick one label that you want can talk about quickly. Uh, I, I like the, the I really like the branding that they're doing um, at two breweries here in Brooklyn at Three's and Other Half. Uh, other Half more modern, like their their cans are gorgeous and uh, metallic, <laughs> uh, and Three's more. Clean classic lines. Uh, I, I like. I really like what both of those guys are doing. I'm going to go with an old favorite, which is New Glarus Spotted Cow, and uh, outside of Wisconsin, where I went to school. And uh, when I see the label, I just think happiness. 
Great. Hey, Doug. Yeah, I'm here. Quick, you, you give us a, a beer label that you really like. You think that does a great job branding. Man, I, I think I don't know that anybody beats Grim Artisanal Ales right now. Their packaging is fantastic, really unique. I mean, the goal the goal for any brewery is to create um, you know unique art that is um, a, a collage of different types of artistic expression without having it be anchored specifically to any direct shapes or objects that. Uh, could become disputed down the road. Grimm has awesome, creative, original art. Um, I love their art. Other Half does a really good job with digital design. We did a collaboration with Other Half that came out uh, in the winter that I fell in love with. It was a really cool collaboration between our artists and theirs. Um, and Burial Beer Company, this brewery out of Asheville, they uh, <laughs> are just absolutely killing it with the art. And uh, you guys should really check them out. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Um, Brandon, Jordan, Ann, and Doug. And a couple of shout-outs for events. Uh, the guys from Bronx Brewery just, just tweeted me, uh, tomorrow night, June 29th, there's a place in New York City called The Roost, and uh, they got a beer launch there. That's all I know. But check it out, Bronx Brewery's uh, launch tomorrow night. A couple of events that we're behind. It's July Good Beer Month. It's starting next week. Some of you will see that on MailChimp and some social media, and it's it's a month where the month kind of happens, but we've got uh, some live events at WNYC uh, Green Space in New York City, some specials on Heritage Road Network, and uh, some other stuff. So check that out and look up good, good, uh, cookoutnyc.com. We've got some special events. And uh, anything else, Anne? Anything going on at uh, one of your spots? I have like a two hours worth more of questions about this. This is so much cooler than I kind of expected. No offense. No, it's good. And, and, and you guys, um, Jordan, and, and you guys have a site or Twitter feed that people can follow? Sure. www.jgreenbergerlaw.com. Yeah, and my, my Twitter, I'm just at uh, bpalfrey10. Bpalfrey10, man. Check it out. All right. So in closing, uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors who helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to Brendan, Jordan, Doug, and Ann for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Justin Kennedy and Maggie Seiden, our engineer, David Tatashore. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. <laughs> Woo! Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.